My good people, what's happening? What's going on? Feeling good? Spirits are high? Week off to a good start? Well, I really hope that's the case. And if you're looking for your sports fix, you've come to the right place. Here on the J Reels Podcast, this is your host, J Reels. Welcome aboard. For those who are tuning in for the very first time, wondering who is this guy, J Reels, and what is this podcast all about? Uh, obviously, I'll delve into everything that's going on in the world of the diamond, the world of the gridiron, the world of the ice, hardwood, tennis court, racetrack, golf course, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, directed, and in full effect. So thank you for tuning in. Welcome aboard. For those who have uh, listened to this rodeo more than once or have been down this road, whether it's one time, two times, ten times, now a 25th time, uh, welcome back. This week, lots to get into as we're into the final week of August, believe it or not. Today is a Monday, the 27th in the year of our Lord 2018. We'll touch in on the college football season as that kicks off. It's actually kicked off this past weekend, but in full swing this coming weekend with a bunch of games and, of course, a couple of marquee matchups that we'll get into. Talk a little Heisman hopefuls, the players to watch uh, for this upcoming college football season as well. We'll recap the whole Urban Meyer shakedown situation, whatever you want to call it, out in Ohio State as he only gets suspended for three games. You'll get all my thoughts in reference to that. Jets and Giants as they prep for their last preseason game of the 2018 season in 10 days. Believe it or not, the season actually kicks off down in Philadelphia between the Falcons and Eagles. So we'll take a little uh, temperature there on both the G-Men and Gang Green. But as always, especially this time of year, we're going to kick it off with the baseball. And we'll start off with the Yankees. One of the themes of this Yankee season, when you look at the standings prior to the start of this weekend, and you see how the Red Sox were able to dominate the teams beneath them, whether it be the Orioles, the Blue Jays, and even to a certain extent, the Rays. Well, that hadn't really happened with the Bombers when coming into this weekend, and they knew pretty much in these past two weeks, dating back to Tuesday, the first game down in Miami, you had the four in Baltimore, Then this week ahead where you have three against the White Sox at home, four against the Tigers. The Yankees certainly want to look at this 13-game stretch as a means to pad their cushion in the American League wildcard. And in the process, they would have to go ahead and beat these bad teams. The Yankees certainly have not had a good job in doing that this year. They've lost some just bad games to bad teams. And a lot of people thought going into this weekend series against the Orioles after splitting the first two in Miami, all right, it happens. You know, you certainly didn't like to lose that back end of the game when back into that series in Miami when they were leading 2 nothing, and then the roof just caved in right after that as they lost 9-3. But the Yankees were going into this past weekend series against the Orioles knowing that they had to get healthy against this team because they've been a pain in the neck and a thorn in their side throughout the whole season. Now, granted, this is the first series that they played without, actually the second, without Manny Machado. Remember, at the end of July, they had the two games at the stadium where they split then before going to Boston, and we all know what happened that weekend. So when you look at the Yankees now, four in Baltimore, including that day-night doubleheader on Saturday, you're thinking, all right, three or four, we at least need to take that. If we could get a sweep, that's even great, but... Considering the way they played against Baltimore this year, you figure that, all right, I'll sign up for three out of four. Well, considering the Friday night game, they were down 4-2 going into the top of the eighth inning. And I'm sure a lot of Yankee fans are wondering, oh, geez, there's no way we could lose this first game. Because chances are you get that stench knowing that you would have gone into Saturday's doubleheader, possibly losing two in a row, Losing another tough game to a, just an awful team. I mean, the Orioles right now, their record is 37-94. and 94. Can you imagine? They are about to be 60 games under 500. But be that as it may, the Yankees certainly pulled up the bootstraps. Gleyber Torres had a big two-run single that propelled them to tie the game. And then in the extra innings, Luke Voigt, a lot of people thought, who is this guy coming in? What is he doing on this ball club? Well, he provided the fireworks there and actually had a very good weekend and certainly had produced very well for them, not only in the Friday night game, but also a couple spots here over the weekend. And then the Yankees take off and they win an extra inning 7-5. to 
And pretty much since that eighth inning when Torres had that key two RBI hit, the Yankees never looked back. They certainly took off, you know, winning 10-3, 5-2, 5-1, pretty much cruise control throughout. And in the process, I mean, who would have thought this? As I said at the top, where the Red Sox were pounding the Rays, Blue Jays, and Orioles that they had pretty much all summer, well, now they go down to Tampa, get swept there, and give Tampa credit. That team is 70-61. and 61. They've done it with no players, and I know we talked about in past podcasts about the Oakland A's, about how they have pretty much nobody on their roster, or you can't even name five guys on their roster. Well, the same goes for the Rays, and they're nine games over. Of course, they're not going anywhere. They're not going to do anything this year, but certainly looks promising for their future if they could somehow, some way, use this year as a building block going into next year. Because we all know it's not as if they're going to bring in any free agents. I understand they have a stadium that's going to be in the works coming down the road, but still very early stages of this team. And you only hope that they would be able to build and continue instead of deconstruct or just totally break down the roster as they've done here in the last couple of years. But back to the Red Sox, where now they get swept. And when you look at the standings as you wake up this morning, the Yankees are six games back, but five in the loss column in the American League East. And I know last week and the past couple of weeks, especially after the sweep when the Yankees went up to Fenway and lost that four-game set, which pretty much fell them back, what was it, nine games at that time, almost ten, and chances for the division were pretty much out to sea. Well, today, as a Yankee fan, you could look at that and say, hey, we're within distance. There's still plenty of games to be played. We still have six games against the Red Sox. Red Sox have a very rough stretch coming up after this week. Why can't we take first place? If you're a Yankee fan right now, I still wouldn't look at winning the division as priority number one. Because if you put all your focus on that, if you're already looking ahead to those games against the Red Sox, you're forgetting about the task at hand, which is the seven games that I mentioned against the White Sox and Tigers, where you could certainly do a lot da- a lot of damage. And then before you go on that big road trip to Oakland, Seattle, and Minnesota, look at where you're at when you're flying out of New York Sunday, heading to the West Coast, and then see where you've the lay of the land in the AL East at that time. It's so easy to look ahead and jump ahead and have these visions of division crowns dancing in your head and not having to worry about hosting a wild card and not having to deal with, oh, Jay Reels, here he goes again with this, just playing out the string until October the 2nd. And I get all that. But you can't look that far ahead. As much as you want to puff your chest out as the Yankee fan right now and say, oh, we're only five in the loss, six back, and that's great. You've made significant strides considering at the beginning of the week you were 10 games back. And now you've made up some ground. But again, you have to take this literally one game at a time because the Red Sox will limp home playing two quick games against the Marlins before going on the road to face the White Sox for four this weekend in Chicago. So you got White Sox coming into town for three and then going back home to play the Red Sox for four. So there's your White Sox perspective for this week. So as much as you want to look ahead and say, all right, Whenever that date is, September 18th, when the Red Sox invade the stadium and you hope that you're at least three games back, well, again, that's still three and a half, four weeks away. And I'm not trying to throw cold water on the Yankee fan or their situation or whatever. Certainly you feel good about yourselves. You feel good about the team, knowing that they've made some significant ground here, considering the Red Sox, who before last week had not lost three games in a row all year, And now they've done that twice in the last 10 days. And you kind of see that the chinks in the armor are certainly rising to the top there when when it comes to the Red Sox, especially when you have Chris Sale on the DL again for 10 days or probably even longer. And I'm sure they're not going to rush him back by any stretch of the imagination because pretty much without him, you could forget about them even going to a World Series. And I understand that may be a strong statement, but when you don't have your top gun – your lockdown ace by far on that pitching staff. It's going to take a lot for any team to overcome that to make it to a World Series, let alone the Red Sox having number 49 there at the top of that pitching rotation. 
So you got to look past this. You can't look past this week, I should say. Yankee fans, you certainly have to take this one game at a time. Hey, you win the night. Red Sox aren't playing. They play tomorrow. That's another half game. And you just got to chip away as you've been chipping away. Because I'm sure at this time last week you weren't thinking about the division or you weren't thinking about, oh, all right, well, if we go 4-1 and one this week or if we sweep Baltimore and if the Red Sox lose, I mean, who would have thought that the Red Sox would have gone to Tampa and lost three in a row considering that they've dominated them all year long? And that's how baseball is. We know that from one week to the next, as much as you were 10 back and now you're 6 back, you could be 8 back come Labor Day a week from today. So, Yankee fans, I certainly wouldn't just get too riled up. I certainly wouldn't get too crazy considering that, again, this was plenty of baseball to be played here. And the good thing is, if you're a Yankee fan, is that they're starting to beat up on the bad teams. Because as we all know, the Yankees have certainly had trouble against the lower dregs of the American League or even the National League for that matter, as they split with the Mets this year. That's all you need to know about that. But being able to take advantage of who's on your schedule is of the utmost importance. And after this week, remember, they have a nine-game West Coast trip. I understand it ends in Minnesota, which, you know, that should be pretty easy for the Yankees as they get them on the back end. But that front end, three in Oakland and three in Seattle, and even though Seattle's starting to falter here a little bit, but, you know, they're going to be fighting for their playoff lives. So those games are certainly not going to be easy. And even though the Yankees swept them earlier this year and they beat Oakland two out of three, but again, to make that West Coast trip here in September, certainly not, uh, no matter how high they're flying, no matter what they do this week, is certainly not going to be an easy task. And even with everybody that's been out of the lineup, which I get, of course you could look at this as very impressive, despite them beating up on Baltimore this weekend, you know, just having no DD. Judge, Sanchez, Chapman was hurt last Tuesday night in that game against Miami. Came out after throwing six pitches. Has that knee injury. He's the guy that you certainly have to, when he's 100% or close to 100% healthy, you just wait wait it out. Wait until then. You certainly don't want to rush him back. They have plenty of bullpen depth. There's no way that they need to even think about rushing him back. Considering the Yankees are, let's face it, whether they catch the Red Sox or not, they're making the postseason. So you got to save your big guns for that time. But even with all that, Yankees still playing great baseball. I said it even after they got swept by the Red Sox. This, there's nothing to worry about with this team. You just want to get them healthy. You want to get them right. You want to get them ready. You know, CeCe came back and put forth a quality start there on Friday night. Severino got back on the Beam there last night, now 17-5 and five this year, or 17-6, and six, I believe. Leads the majors with wins. And not only that, but you're also getting the contributions, just like they got in that middle part of the year from, what was it, May 1st to about June, uh, if I had to take a guess, you know, a six, seven-week stretch from May 1st to right before 4th of July where the Yankees got contributions from anybody and everybody, it seemed. You know, if it's not this guy one day, it's that guy the next. You know, like I mentioned earlier, you had Luke Voigt with the big game Friday night and hit another home run over the weekend. And then you had Neil Walker, who had the brutal start, but he's certainly starting to contribute. You know, Miguel Andujar is certainly, to me, the rookie of the year in the American League. He's just been nonstop, fast and furious throughout this whole season. When you have a team that's so resourceful like that and they pick up one another, you know, it masks and it shadows the one for 15 with eight strikeouts that Giancarlo Stanton had over the weekend. And when you have so many other players contributing, that certainly doesn't magnify the lack of production that Stanton had over the weekend. It just goes to show you how not only good, but how deep of a baseball team you really are. And we all know the issues with the Yankees. Of course, come October, is their starting pitch going to come through? Not only that, are some of their key guys going to be healthy enough for a big stretch run, you would think, because there's still plenty of time to, to go here. For the last five weeks of the season, Gary Sanchez is now playing in minor league rehab games. So you would think that his should be back in the mix sometime for the road trip coming next Monday. Same for Didi as he's dealing with his heel. Aaron Judge, on the other hand, they say the pain is still there. You still got to take your time with him. I understand he's arguably the most important player on this team. 
but you certainly don't want to rush him back because you're going to need his bat there, especially come late September in those games against the Red Sox. Obviously, if they mean something as far as the division is concerned, on top of that, the postseason. And like I mentioned earlier, the Yankees, we all know what they have in front of them as far as their schedule is concerned. As I said, day by day, I get that. And you can look ahead for the Red Sox and say, well, hey, even though they have a pretty easy week this coming week, you know, they have to go to Atlanta and then host Houston Labor Day week into that following weekend. And it's easy to look ahead and jump ahead and to think that, oh, by this time they could be two games back or whatever it is. You know, if we had that crystal ball, you know, let's just make out who the World Series champion is going to be. You know, so as and I get that that's what sports fans do. You know, when you look ahead, especially NFL coming up, you start looking at the schedule, be like, okay, well, the Jets could win week one, or the Giants, or they'll could be 11 and five. As we all know, we cannot speculate or predict exactly what's going to happen here. And despite the fact, the fact that the Yankees have had a great run, they've beat up the teams they've had to beat up on, doing what they have to do, they're still five and a loss, six back. And as much as you want to jump up and down and think that you have a shot at the division, again, you got to take this one game at a time, one day at a time. Because as I said, right now, this is where you're on the standings, but next Monday we can come back here on the pod and next thing you know, it's, you know, they're eight games back or eight and a half or whatever it is. So Yankees obviously are in good shape. They're in good shape for the wild card. We all know that. You just need to get healthy. Get your team locked, stocked, and ready to go, especially come that series against Boston. And not just for the division, if it's, you know, if the Yankees are obviously within two or three games back, you're certainly going to go for it. But I would think you'd want to get back to full strength by then, only because you're going to be playing the Red Sox. Those are going to be competitive games regardless. Even at the end of the year, if the division is gone and that last weekend of the season, and I get Boone's probably going to rest players and he's not going to go full throttle. But at the same time, you know that your team needs to be as close to 100% as possible and close to baseball playing shape. And I understand that's kind of weird to say because when you think of, let's say, football, for instance, you know, that guy's maybe in great shape, but he's not in football shape or he's not in game shape. Well, baseball is pretty much the same thing. You know, it's all about timing, it's all about getting your rhythm, it's, you know, hitting, et cetera. So just because a guy may be on a good streak and then, all right, well, Red Sox win the division, you're going into that last weekend, you know, giving a few bats here, a few bats there. You have the September call-ups. You want to give them some burn. Eh, Well, no, you're tuning up here for the playoffs. And considering what the injuries that this team has had, I don't think you could just automatically take your pedal off the metal and just think that, all right, well, let's just coast right into October 2nd play that wild card game, and away we go. I don't like that. I'd rather go guns a-blazing. All right, that final Sunday game, you want to put in the regulars for one or two at-bats, fine, and pull them out? That's right. That's great. But I just think taking guys in and out of the lineup here and there, and, ah, you know, let's rest this guy. guy, But, again, it goes back to the analytics and all the nonsense of baseball the way it is today that by – not having this player bat up, you know, go up against this pitcher or not having this guy in the lineup for this particular day for whatever the reason it may be because of, you know, these stupid stats, yeah, I just don't buy it. I'm sure I'm in the minority when it comes to that. It's a whole other story, but that's just me. I'm sure there are other people that feel that way. I think you just play until you know that your fate has been sealed as far as your positioning and the postseason is concerned. And even then, it doesn't mean to just call off the dogs and, all right, let's just wake up October 2nd, fill out the lineup card, and that's it. No. Play it out. That final game, you want to rest your players? All right, great. I get that. But if the Red Sox win a division with six games to go, if Aaron Boone's going to you know, just sparingly play people in certain games at certain times or whatever, I just think that's bad business. But that's something for down the road. That's something we'll dissect then if it does happen that way. But we'll uh, certainly see how that uh, shakes down as we get closer to the end of the season. A couple things on the Mets. I know not much to discuss, please. Uh, I'm not going to get into them being 500 since July 1st or whatnot. I mean, that's just <laughs> comical. 
But there are three things I need to bring up that are developing here when you look at the roster and even the organization moving forward. Jeff McNeil. Here's a guy who's had just a phenomenal year on the minor league level, and he's actually produced here in the majors. He's batting 340. Second base, his defense, you know, nobody's going to confuse him with Roberto Alomar, but he's certainly shown some discipline. He's certainly shown some patience at the plate, and he's batting 340. I also get that a lot of the teams, you know, it's not as if they have a huge scouting report. I mean, they know he's probably left-handed and – they probably know his strengths is where he's going to hit the ball. We know he's not going to have a lot of power. We know that he's not going to beat the tar out of the ball. He's pretty much how I look at him as a hitter. He was pretty much Daniel Murphy when he came up in the Mets back in 2008. That same type of hitter. Now, Murphy, of course, has become polished. We all know what he's turned out to be here, especially over the last few years as a major league ball player. And I'm not trying to compare by any stretch Jeff McNeil to Daniel Murphy. But when you look at him standing in the box and how he he know he has very good play discipline, doesn't strike out a lot. Well, he has 106 at-bats. He struck out 11 times, which in this day and age, that's remarkable. But even still, if you're a Met fan, and more importantly, if you're the brass, the top guys in the organization, is this somebody that you're going to want to move with moving forward into 2019? There's no way, shape, or form that this guy should be on the bench the rest of the year. And I don't care if he goes up against Clayton Kershaw on the West Coast trip next week when he's in L.A. or against Bumgarner or against any of these top pitchers or left-handed pitchers, whomever it may be. He needs to play. You need to see what you have. And granted that it's still a small sample size and it's toward the end of the year and it's even going to be more dangerous coming into September because you have a bunch of call-ups. You're going to have a bunch of AAA pitchers that are looking to try to – play a role here, not only for the rest of this season, but possibly into next season. And a lot of these players that are going to be coming up, I could see Jeff McNeil beating up on these pitchers and not going to say pad his stats, but he's certainly going to have better stats that's going to look at the end of the year than he would if he played throughout a whole year. But you know what? Just like you playing against competition and if you're playing against the bottom feeders of the American League or National League or whatever it may be, then guess what? That's all you can do, right? You can't look at, oh, well, he needs to face against this top pitcher all the time or against these top teams. If he's done the job here and he continues, he's not going to bat 340, but let's say McNeil ends the year batting 310 or somewhere around 300. You only hope that this kid could go to Arizona Fall League or play some type of winter ball to work on his defense, and chances are you may not have to go outside the organization for a second baseman. So McNeil seems like a keeper, certainly is produced well and belongs here. And a very interesting decision that will be made there by the front office, and I'm going to get to more about the front office in a minute. But you certainly like what you see with this kid, and you can only hope that he will continue to progress here and not regress toward the end of the season and certainly give him a shot, give himself a shot to get the starting second base job for 2019. The second thing is Zach Wheeler. I have my reservations about Zach Wheeler considering that here's a guy, as we all know, traded for Beltron, was a six-pick overall, I believe, in 2011. Came up, did some good things. Tommy John took him over two years. When he pitched last year, inconsistent. When he started this year, consistent. But now he's starting to find his groove, and he actually is really finding his groove considering that he's just been dominant in his last seven starts. He certainly turned himself around and turned his career around. You only hope that this continues over the course of the next five weeks. And again, he's going to go up against these teams. He's going to go up against the Marlins twice at home. He's going to go up against, oh, who knows? I mean, the Reds, they do play the Red Sox in mid-September. So you kind of wonder what type of you know players, more AAA or 4A players that are going to be in the lineup come September. But it doesn't matter. If he pitches well and certainly continues to – be as dominant as he has been, that's certainly a great feather in the cap for the Mets staff going into next year. I think just assessing Zach Wheeler, do I trust him 100% as a Mets fan? I can't say I do, but I think the one thing we could possibly look at, and not necessarily just his confidence level and making his pitches and certainly being as effective as he has been, is maybe for the first time since Tommy John back in 2014, 
is that he could be 100% healthy. And because he's physically feeling well and at or close to 100%, I'm sure mentally, spiritually, and his confidence has skyrocketed to the point where he's pitching like that number one pick back in 2011. I hate to bring up Matt Harvey again, but when you look at what he's gone through, his own Tommy John situation, all right, in 2015 he came back. He had a very good year. Wasn't 2013, but certainly was a very good year. We know about the whole innings limit and uh, everything that happened in 2015. Then the bad start in 2016, thoracic outlet syndrome, surgery on the shelf. To the start, to last year and everything that happened then and the beginning of this year, we know that Matt Harvey – part of his game was his confidence and his demeanor on the mound. And a lot of that was zapped due to the injuries and him not being 100% completely fully healthy. I'm sure attributed it to him having that lack of confidence or having that dark night persona just wither into the night where now Zach Wheeler, obviously with a lot less fanfare has start to come into his own because he knows that, the Tommy John is pretty much in his rearview mirror. All the other nagging injuries that had happened over the course of his comeback seem to be in his rearview mirror. That now he's able to pitch with the consistency and the level of, I'm sure, what he would ex- expect out of himself and out of being a former top-round pick, being able to come into his own and know that, hey, this is the guy that I was always supposed to be. And that goes a long way. And a lot of that, believe it or not, I don't want to say get swept under the rug because people, they're going to look at what's at the back of his baseball card. And it's going to state, going into this stretch here, that he's been a below-average pitcher. That he hasn't been the guy that's been touted out to be a top pitcher based on where he was drafted. So here we are, now at the end of August, and he's put these, you know, the string of victories together and just dominance, tons of strikeouts, Seven innings, you know, one run, no run baseball. And you got to think that he's probably as healthy as he's ever been at the major league level and obviously as confident as he's ever been at the major league level. So when you combine those two things, you only hope that he could just build on this going into next year. So now instead of having a DeGrom Syndergaard, you could pencil in Wheeler as that third guy and how many top three Guys, does anybody have in baseball? I know you could probably argue what's going on down in Houston. There's maybe three guys that could come out of there. Now, Keiko, I know it's taking a little hit here, but you know Charlie Morton has gone up in the rankings as far as the starting rotation in Houston, but with Verlander and, of course, Garrett Cole. But those are things to build on or two players right there that you could look ahead and say, all right, hopefully we could bank on these guys for next year as we try to turn this thing around and get back to some playoff baseball. And then the third thing with the front office, and this is the scary thing, and I'm not going to bring up Jeff Wilpon in this because I've beaten that, you know, to death. That drum is just, you know, worn out. But the one thing I need to say in reference to the front office is that if they're going to go outside and get a GM to bring in here, I just hope that he comes in here, clean slate, He'll get the assessment from whomever's in the organization, whoever's going to stay here, whether it's going to be Ricciardi stepping down to a lesser position here at the organization. Same for John Rico. Omar is going to be part of the mix, more or less with the international stuff. But whomever that GM is, you just only hope that he can look at this team and say, all right, this is what I've seen or what I've heard, seen from afar, what I've heard from the organization, and they can be able to assess what they have instead of just getting that whole big sunshiny, rosy, hey, look at what's going on here. We don't need to trade this guy because he's doing great. Or, no, no. Because that's the trouble that this team and this organization gets into because they may look at certain guys, and I just mentioned the two, Jeff McNeil, Zach Wheeler, that they become so in love with what they've done down the stretch that they either – Push all the chips in the middle of the table and just bank on those two guys, which in essence would set them up for failure. Not that I'm trying to predict that this was going to happen with these two guys, but bottom line is this, people. My point is is that the Mets need to get better in several positions 
whether it has to be by free agency or by trade. And despite the fact that you will know who your pieces are that are going to be in play coming into next year, that you only hope that they can certainly assess it, whether from afar or from within the organization, whenever they step foot in here, that they could go ahead and look and say that, you know what, this guy deserves a chance. Or, you know what, hey, this guy, if we can, we could bring back somebody for this, a, a big hitting outfielder. Or big hitting at first, you know, first baseman, whatever it may be. Does that mean Zach Wheeler goes in a trade? It's possible. Do I want Zach Wheeler traded? Of course, you're not going to say that right now. You know, Jeff McNeil's not going to go any trades. You know, he's 26 years old. Obviously, he's pretty much singing for his supper, but he's certainly performing at a high level. Considering, you only hope that the organization does the right thing by what's going on here, and not just look at. Penciling Zach Wheeler as a guy that, hey, he's going to be bonafide 15 and 7 next year. Well, let's hope that. I mean, let's hope that's the case. And again, that's a conversation that's going to take place October into November. Because as we all know, you know, this organization, one player, you know, and I don't want to single out any particular player, but, you know, somebody could go on a hot stretch in September and right away they think that, you know, oh, this is a lock for 2019. You know, it's almost as if they're sold by, and we all know it's a results business, you know, it's a result-driven business. We get that. But don't let one month or six weeks, and even though this stretch here with Wheeler's been great, and hopefully it continues, but let's not just think that automatically what you saw there is going to happen next year. You know, let's get in the guy's mindset. Let's make sure that they've continued to develop. And which is one of the reasons why the Mets have been unsuccessful, especially with some of their players in-house, because they just look at it on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis, as opposed to saying, hey, in the offseason, making sure that the guy's right on all levels. I'm not trying to say from a mental, psychological level, but you know, when you look at a guy like Zach Wheeler, you would only hope that everybody else will follow suit. Whatever that guy's done, whatever he's continued to do, yeah, you only hope that that progresses into next year. I mean, that's all I got there for the Mets. I mean, what else is there to talk about? They're going on a nine-game road trip to Chicago, San Francisco, and L.A., despite the fact they've been playing well. But we'll see how uh, they do on this trip before they come back home to place. And they only have two more homestands left, which is amazing how fast this baseball season goes by. But that's what you got there for the baseball and with the Mets here on a uh, Monday in late August. All right, now to briefly go through the MLB landscape and discuss what's happening with the pennant races that are starting to heat up. And we're going to start off with the AL West because this week for the Oakland A's, they're certainly going to have their hands full. They will go to Houston to play three games, which currently they stand one and a half games behind the Astros in the American League West. Crucial series there. And then they go to uh, back home, the A's, to play Seattle, where Seattle is pretty much hanging on for their dear life at this uh, stretch of the season. So Houston, who have uh, certainly righted the ship. I mean, remember last week they almost got swept by Oakland and when they won that final game there where uh, Verlander got his 200 victory. The uh, Astros have certainly uh, uh, done very well since then. They've won five in a row coming into this series against the Athletics. And now this could be a series where Oakland could put themselves in some distance uh, considering that they're playing at home and with the them being one and a half games ahead of the A's in the division – certainly could uh, do a little damage to the A's chance of trying to get the uh, top spot there uh, in the American League West. And then with Seattle, as I said before, they are six and a half back, five behind Oakland. And Seattle knows that this week could pretty much seal their fate. And Seattle, we all know they've had a great year, a very surprising year, although a lot of people may have thought that they could have been a team uh, with everything, all the moves that they have made, and uh, you know, bringing in D. Gordon, the closer's having a uh, phenomenal year, uh, pretty much a record-breaking year if he keeps this up. But uh, with Cano going out for 80 games due to the uh, PED suspension, and uh, now you kind of wonder if they're running out of gas. So although the division still, I don't want to say up for grabs, Houston, you would think that they had, you know, they have a decent hold right now, but could certainly put a stranglehold on the division with some damage against uh, Oakland this week. So those are uh, two series that we'll certainly look at. Uh, throughout the course of the next seven days. Uh, As far as the rest of the American League, we talked about Yankees and Red Sox. We know where that's going. 
And uh, as far as the Central, there's nothing to discuss there as Cleveland has a considerable lead and uh, will just cruise to a division championship. As far as the National League is concerned, the Braves and Phillies going at it with Phillies right now have uh, started to slip a little bit. They are uh, currently three games back. The Braves, who just finished a series down there in Miami, uh, leading the division. Remember, they play seven times in the last ten uh, games of the regular season between the Braves and Phillies, and you would think that the division will come down to those two series. Uh, so we'll uh, see how that unfolds. The Nationals uh, coming off just a pathetic weekend, despite the fact that they won 15 nothing against the Mets yesterday, but they scored 14 of the runs in the eighth and ninth inning. You know, they got shut out three straight games prior to that. Uh, only scored the one run. Pretty much when you think about it, they had one run scored in about 32 innings and then exploded for 14 in the final two of yesterday afternoon's game. Washington, whatever left of a season they have, they go down to Philadelphia here uh, the early part of this week to see what they could do. But they're pretty much another team that's uh, just fallen completely flat on their face. You know, they're eight and a half games behind in the division. A considerable amount is the same for the wild card. And right now, the Nationals, which last week traded both Daniel Murphy and Matt Adams, Murphy to the Cubs, Adams back to the Cardinals, pretty much threw up the white flag. You wonder what's going to happen here over the course of the next seven days. There were uh, reports about Bryce Harper being put on waivers that a team had claimed him, but then the Nationals had uh, revoked that and brought him back as far as uh, being on the Nationals concerned. So who knows who else is going to be on the way out. <clears throat> excuse me, here in the course of the next the next six days. And it's weird because when you look at the Nationals and how they were built and to think that it's all coming down to this, you know, Harper could be gone at the end of this year, as we all know, because he's a free agent. The The team, I think, as talented as they are, you kind of wonder if they need to blow this thing up, if Harper's going to be gone, do they try to trade Rendon? They cannot trade Scherzer or Strasburg. They're both getting paid a fortune. You know, they have guys that are coming into the mix, the Vic Robles of the world. We know about Juan Soto. Uh, Zimmerman's pretty much going to be on his way out. So this is the last of the Nationals with the Harper-Zimmerman regime is uh, coming down to a close. If you're a Met fan, you, at least you could say you made it to a World Series in 2015 despite the fact you didn't win it. And although you have been not good in the other years, I understand you made it to the postseason there in 2016, but... Imagine being a national fan since 2012 and just having heartache after heartache after heartache. And then now this was supposed to be the season. Uh, Bryce's potentially last season as a national. You bring in a new manager. Scherzer is, you know, tops in the Cy Young candidacy. You know, you have a kid who maybe would possibly be up for rookie of the year, although Ronald Cunha Jr. chances are will probably win the award. And still the nationals are one game under 500 and far from a playoff spot. So, that's just how baseball is sometimes. Just because you have the best talent on paper doesn't mean it translates to uh, what goes on in the field, as we well know. In the Central, the Cubs are starting to put some distance here as uh, they're getting hot. They're now uh, four games up against the Cardinals and four and a half against the Brewers in their division. Cubs, you would think, right now with this late season stretch, they could certainly put themselves in a real good spot. The Brewers right now, we certainly haven't seen it from them. They have a young team, a good team, but don't know if they're ready to take that next step as far as being that playoff slash championship type team. The Cardinals, we know they have that pedigree. And even after the firing of Mike Matheny, and they bring in the you know the, uh, the manager now, Schilt, who's come in there and he's done an excellent job, and they've just been playing phenomenal. Matt Carpenter is on a, you know, an MVP tear. But it may be too little too late for this team as they're four games back. And I don't know how many games they have left. I think they have one more series left, the Cardinals and Cubs. I know they've already played a ton of games this year. Of course, they play in the division. But we'll see with the Cubs if this is going to be a time. And now the, the Mets coming in, I'm sure, sure they're going to pad their cushion there in the uh, NL Central, despite the fact that Syndergaard and Agram are going tonight and tomorrow uh, out in Wrigley. And out west, the Diamondbacks currently have a one-game lead on the Rockies, who are uh, – have been playing well of late. Dodgers have certainly taken a couple steps back, although that they've started to get back into winning ways. The Diamondbacks visit the Dodgers for four games at Chavez Ravine this coming weekend, so that's going to be pretty telling, at least in the immediate future, as to where these teams will be. You know, Can Arizona put themselves a little distance from them and the Dodgers? Will the Dodgers kind of creep back and maybe take over the division, depending on, on what uh, shakes down out in L.A. over the weekend? So we got that to look forward to. 
And that's pretty much it for your baseball. You know, other than that, you know, you have a lot of these teams that are out. You know, both AL and NL West are hot and heavy. AL East is starting to get interesting. And the NL East, although the Braves with a three-game lead, but a lot of people think that the Braves, oh, this is going to be the time to fall off or it's just a matter of time. Well, it's already late August. I mean, unless they get some injuries and unless they just start to go into a complete tailspin, I would think they're going to be completely fine here down the stretch. And I tell you, you know, for the Braves to be here a year early just goes to show you, and they got a lot of depth in that minor league system. Braves can be a force, uh, going to be a force to be reckoned with here in the future. So if they're a year early, they're certainly making their mark and certainly not trying to go away. So uh, Braves and Phillies, for that matter, also a year uh, ahead of schedule here in the AL uh, in the NL East. All right, as for your football here locally, I know last week the talk I felt, despite the fact that Sam Darnold has had a very good preseason, and for whatever you stock that you put into these preseason games, I think you can't get crazy. But Tuesday, even into the leading up to the game against the Giants there last Friday night, you know, a lot of people thought that Sam Darnold is going to be your starter come week one. You know, that's what you get from what's been reported. That's what you get from hearing inside that locker room that this quarterback here, Sam Darnold, has certainly commanded a lot of presence. He's certainly been a leader here so far during this training camp that Teddy Bridgewater, and he's been very productive here in this preseason. Now you're hearing rumblings about maybe him getting traded before the start of the season, which I think is a little premature. I don't know if that's, you know, writers just trying to dig up a story. But if Darnold's going to be a week one guy, well, guess what? I think it's a good thing if you're a Jet fan, but at the same time, I'd be a little cautious. And for this reason only. This is a Jet team that, right, they're not bound to make the playoffs this year. You would think that there's going to be some progress. You would only hope that there could be at least 500. And again, 500 isn't anything to jump up and down and scream and yell about. But if Sam Donald has that type of year where he's 8-8, eight and eight, then you can only imagine what it's going to be like going into training camp next year. But the one thing that I would worry if you're a Jet fan is that this offensive line is very questionable. And I'm just being kind when I say that. It's not to say it's a bad offensive line. It's not to say that it's an offensive line that's a makeshift that's going to do well throughout the course of the season. We don't know that. But you just don't want your quarterback getting mauled here throughout the course of the season. And as we know, it's a very trying position. We all understand that quarterbacks are going to get hit. They're going to get pressure, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a matter. He could throw 100 interceptions. He could get pressure throughout the course of the game, whatever. It's the mental toughness he'll be able to build from that. But my thing is that you just do not want him to get maimed. Just look at Andrew Luck. And we understand it only happens to the handful of guys. Or we only, oh, whoa, well, that was just a freak occurrence with Luck. And, well, he'd been under siege since he got into the league. And why? Because the offensive line has not been good. And this offensive line would scare you from that perspective because not that they expect Donald to drop back and throw 40 passes a game. You know they're going to simplify it. You've already seen it throughout the course of this preseason. You know, it's not as if he's put up gaudy numbers. He's put up very relatively safe numbers despite the fact he's not facing top defenses. And you would think they're going to minimize the offense for him to get the ball out of his hand as quick as possible. And we understand all that. But, again, that offensive line is questionable at best. And the only thing that I would fear is that he gets that major injury. And people could say, Jay Reels, come on, you can't look at that that way. You can't look at having him go into a regular season or having them start off week one in Detroit and worry about, oh, well, how many times he's going to get hit? And this guy, you finally get your franchise quarterback since Joe Namath. I mean, the guy isn't bulletproof. You know, it's not as if he's not going to get injured. All right, let's Listen, I'm not hoping he gets injured. I mean, please, that's the last thing I'm thinking about. But for the franchise, for your fan base, if he deserves starting week one, that's great, fine. I hope he plays all 16 games. I hope he takes every snap. But look at that offensive line, and if you're going to start seeing sack totals increase as the weeks go on, and especially if that offensive line starts dropping like flies, then what are you going to do? Can't run the ball 50 times a game. I mean, unless you're getting 250 yards at a clip. We know that's not going to happen. But that's just one thing that I would be very leery about. 
You know, it's not as if he has the Dallas Cowboy offensive line or the Oakland Raider offensive line in front of him. If that's the case, then you say, all right, hey, let's get to it. But because he doesn't have that stacked offensive line, not to say he's going to be stacked at every position, but, you know, it's not as if he has that dominant left tackle or he has that, that center where you know that tried and true he's going to pull through and follow through. So just something to watch out for. And if Donald wins the job, then this town's going to go crazy. Well, at least the Jet fans' side of town. And good for him. I think the stuff with Bridgewater being traded, it is way premature. You certainly can't think that, oh, we could get a third rounder or we could get this guy. No, no, no. I would think that even with Bridgewater not getting the starting job, it will certainly net back a decent pick come the trade deadline or whatever that is, mid-October. But I don't think it would be wise for them to trade right away unless they just get blown away. You know, somebody's quarterback is injured week one, week two, and then next thing you know, they're calling up Mike McCagney to say, hey, we desperately need Teddy Bridgewater. What can we give you to procure him? And obviously this final preseason game against Philly, nobody's going to suit up. It's going to be just pretty much a scrimmage. And then we could concentrate on week one, Monday night, Ford Field, Jets-Lines to kick off your 2018 season. And as far as the Giants are concerned, my thing is, is when you look at this offense, Saquon Barkley, that's the guy. Now people can say, oh, timeout, J. Rose. Eli, Evan Ingram, who's in concussion protocol right now and who knows how long he's going to be out. Odo Beckham Jr., we get that. But the reason why you spent your number two pick overall on a running back is to have him ready for week one. And we all know that you know, the hamstring, obviously with a running back, it's all about his legs. And granted that he's a young buck. And he's just getting started. But you don't want that sucker to nag all season long. There's two things that you worry about when it comes to any player for that matter, especially when you're using your legs. Are the hamstrings and the high ankle sprains. Because those seem, those suckers seem to never go away. And high ankle sprains, you could rest for six weeks or you could get all the treatment you want and all it just takes is that one pivot or one step and that's it it's back on the shelf again those suckers never heal and with the hamstring especially at his position that's something you've got to be overly concerned about and the reason why they brought him here is to take that offense to a next level we all know what they could do in the passing game when everyone's healthy but it's the running game that's eluded them all these years especially in since we'll say the Super Bowl year the second Super Bowl year the Giants and remember they didn't have flashy running backs back then either you know, the Brandon Jacobs, the Ahmad Bradshaws of the world. I mean, now you got Saquon Barkley where this guy's Brandon Jacobs and Ahmad Bradshaw on the left side of his body. So here we are, 10 days away, or really two weeks when you think about it, from yesterday. And the Giants have a very tough test that first week. So imagine Saquon Barkley comes back and he's playing against the Jacksonville defense. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to be a tall order for a rookie running back to come in to go against that defense who has been obviously they're very stout so hopefully he'll be ready to go I'm sure he'll be ready to go and they uh using the kick gloves on him to make sure he's gonna be ready for that week one game but again that first test is gonna be interesting with those legs and that defense certainly one to keep our eyes on all right a few other quickies before we say goodbye the U.S. Open tennis that is starts today here right in our backyard Flushing Meadow uh just uh, players of note on the men's side, Rafael Nadal is your top seed. Uh, I was surprised to see Novak Djokovic at six. So he's down there for whatever reason. Uh, you have Federer, two. Uh, you know, the usual suspects. Juan Martin Del Potro, they're on the top of the Kevin Anderson, I know, who made it to the Wimbledon final. He's ranked fifth in the world, so those are guys to keep an eye out for. I didn't know on the women's side, Simona Halep, or probably Halep, however you pronounce it, She's ranked number one. Didn't even know who she was. So she overtook uh, Caroline Wozniacki as far as the top seed overall. Serena, if you're wondering where she's at, 17. I don't even know where Venus is ranked. But as we all know, Serena does very well at this tournament. Excuse me. As uh, she's continuing her quest to up her all-time record major mark. I believe she's at 23 right now. And uh, always a good event. A lot of people usually go here in the neighborhood in the 
Tri-State, you always hear people going to U.S. Open. I actually went a couple years ago. It was phenomenal. It was, it was great. I went that first Saturday, got to see Andy Murray play. And uh, it's an event. I mean, what could you say? It's a major sporting event. It doesn't get a lot of pub as some of the others out there. And understandably so because you don't have a lot of American, especially on the men's side, a lot of American men that, unlike yesteryear where you had John McEnroe and Jimmy Connors and, you know, the list goes on. Arthur Ashe. Now we all know it's more dominant overseas when it comes to the top men's players. And same for the women for that regard. I mean, if it wasn't for Venus and Serena, I mean, who do you have? So U.S. Open will certainly uh, keep our eye on that as it unfolds and see uh, where that ends up here in two weeks as we crown the tennis season as far as the majors are concerned for 2018. And the season, the opening, ushering in another college football 2018 is uh, upon us. As a matter of fact, I understand it already started this past weekend. I'm sure 20 people paid attention to that. I certainly didn't. But college football in full swing this weekend, Labor Day weekend, where you have your matchups for Saturday night, Sunday night, and Monday night, Michigan and Notre Dame, which they actually start very early. Usually you get that Michigan-Notre Dame week two, week three of the college football season. So that'll kick off your Saturday night NBC, followed by Sunday night Miami at LSU. LSU actually ranked 25th, which is the lowest they've been ranked in God knows how long. Uh, that's your Sunday night matchup. And then you have Vatek against FSU Monday night, which uh, will round out your week one college football schedule. The top five ranked is uh, no shock there. Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Wisconsin, Ohio State. So that, that rounds out your top five. And Ohio State, obviously, in the news last week where they came down on their decision for Coach Urban Meyer. And are you surprised? Well, when you're a coach, your lifetime record is 177-31, and 31, and you have multiple national titles to your belt, including one a few years back as coach of the Ohio State University. Unfortunately, they're going to get the slap on the wrist. You know, they weren't going to suspend him for a year. I thought that my heart of hearts, was he going to get dismissed? No. I know a couple weeks back I did say, it's like, hey, I wouldn't be surprised if he is dismissed considering the culture that we live in when it comes to anything that has to do with domestic abuse. And I understand it wasn't directly, if if he was the one that was doing the, if this was his case, Urban Meyer, there would have been no reason for him to come back. I mean, they Ohio State would have been slaughtered coast to coast if somehow, some way, he wasn't terminated. But because it wasn't directly associated with him, him being, of course, the head coach and with the former coach just being assist, <clears throat> an assistant, excuse me, that they only gave him the three games, I thought that they would probably give him at least six going into conference play. That didn't happen. So he gets the three. And then the press conference was a bit of a mess too because he didn't even apologize to Courtney Smith, of ex-wife of Zach Smith, who was the assistant coach that was dismissed and then afterwards then apologized as, as certainly the whole thing was just sorted and just didn't and I get that during the Big 12 press day when the question was brought up to him and we all know how he handled that situation of course he wasn't forthright and forthcoming about it he just thought it would have been swept away swept under a rug and that was it and of course it resurfaced and we all know what happened Coach gets dismissed, and then now we have to backpedal and kind of get our story straight and get it all together. And it just uh, obviously doesn't look right. Doesn't look right on him. Doesn't look right on the university. And it's certainly, the, I'm sure, there are certain groups out there that aren't too happy with Urban Meyer coming back on the fourth week of the college football season. What does it mean in the grand scheme of things, as far as their program and what they're going to do this year? I mean, the first three games, I don't know what their schedule is, but it, I'm sure they're against cupcakes. So. They should be able to win those games fine. But sadly, you know, he's still the coach. And, I, and when I say sadly, I know that may be kind of strong, but sadly in the sense that there are people I'm sure that probably wanted more out of a suspension. Do I think three games is fair? No, I think maybe half the season would have really said, ooh, okay, that that would have made a statement, but it didn't. And all you can look at is the three games. You take it and you just kind of move on and away you go. So 
that's what we have there with the college football. And then also with the Heisman, if anybody's interested in that, the top Heisman hopefuls for 2018, Bryce Love, the kid from Stanford, who had a phenomenal year last year, running back. A lot of people think he'd be the front runner to win the award this year. Uh, another running back out of Wisconsin, Jonathan Taylor. Uh, and then to round that out, you have two quarterbacks, Will Greer from West Virginia, Khalil Tate, uh, Arizona. They're under a new coaching staff, so we'll see how he performs uh, out there for the Wildcats. And then uh, defensive tackle out of Houston, Eric Oliver. Oh, I'm sorry, Ed Oliver. My apologies. Uh, those pretty much round out your top five. So I, I don't really get wrapped up in the Heisman. You kind of look at it as the season goes on, maybe when you get into November or once the baseball's over and you get a feel, unless somebody's just having this, this killer year. But uh, for anybody who's into that or anybody's curious to find out, oh, yeah, who are the top guys that uh, we're looking at here as far as college football player of the year is concerned? Uh, those will be the guys to look at. And if anybody else comes up as a dark horse, I'm sure whoever pays attention to that. And people know I'm not much of a college football fan. I've warmed up to it over the years. When you live in the Northeast like I do, college football is way down on the totem pole. It's because there's, there's no college football presence here. I mean, that's all there is to it. The closest you have is Rutgers in New Jersey. And even though Rutgers had that one year where they got to number two, I think it was a 2007, when they beat, I believe they beat Louisville on that Thursday night ESPN game. And they got to number two in the country. And then the next week they got waxed. I forgot. I can't even remember who it was. Well, they got stomped, and then they were never pretty much to be heard from ever again. But you don't have that presence here. And, see, at least with college basketball, you got St. John's. Well, they haven't been good. But you're basing it on their history in the Big East. Syracuse, obviously, is four or five hours north of here. So college, you have a better feel for college basketball in this town than you do college football. For me, even as a kid growing up here, I never got into college football. But with what I do... Obviously, I have to be on top of it. I have to be attuned to it. But it's not as if I have a team that I root for or have pom-poms that I break out for any particular team or player for that matter. So that's why, although as the days and weeks go by and that we talk about college football on a whole, you know, I'll get into it. I'll get into the matchups. I'll get into some of the games. Uh, for those people, you know, down in the south, of course, SEC country or out Big Ten, uh, Big 12, Pac-12, whatever it may be, that will certainly be front and center, especially once the baseball season's over because then we can concentrate more on the football, even though basketball and hockey will be rearing its head for uh, a new season. But college football certainly will be a lot more prominent as we get uh, deeper into the fall and obviously once we get into bowl season. All right, so that'll do it for this week. Uh, Everybody, I implore you, please, to go ahead and subscribe to this podcast for wherever you get your podcasts whether it be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, uh, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify. Please feel free to do that whenever you can. It's just a few swipes, a few clicks. Leave a rating, post a review. Uh, the more visibility that it gets in the sports podcast universe, the better it is and more chances of me getting guests on the program, which I know has been a little bit of a challenge, but that's what happens when you're an independent outfit. No excuses. Of course, there are some people out there that are willing to be a participant, but uh, obviously, for whatever the reason, the timing has been off over the course of the last few months. But I know one way to generate that will be to have you guys just go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, of course, the J Reels podcast. Uh, you can check uh, my website as well at www.jreels.com for any of the latest info, what's going on with the program, myself, etc. I want to thank Tony Delk and his assistant, Nicole Castorino, for putting forth a great event there on Saturday night at Jack Dempsey's to promote his book and his wine collection. It was great to spend time with Tony and talk shop about basketball, college hoops, the NBA, etc. So uh, many thanks for them to invite me out to their event. And hopefully there'll be other future events uh, somewhere down the road. If you need to send an email, questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, you can find me on any of my social media accounts, jreels on Instagram, jreels1, just a number, at Twitter, and the J Reels Podcast on Facebook. I have my own Facebook page there, J Reels Podcast. And send me an email at the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Until next time on the J Reels Podcast, big NFL extravaganza next week, all the predictions, over unders, etc. So definitely want to stay tuned for that. And until then, everybody, on the flippy.